A word of caution. This episode contains descriptions of murder and domestic violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. Investigators in Hendersonville, North Carolina, think they know who murdered a local resident in 1984, but they are missing pieces of evidence that would convict the suspected killer. A young woman goes missing in South Carolina, and her ex-boyfriend is arrested for murdering his girlfriend and their unborn child. Does he know more than he's saying? And a 53-year-old woman in North Carolina is trying to get back on her feet, but after going out late one night to help a friend with car trouble, she is never seen again. Someone in her friend circle must know what happened. We'll also bring you updates on a few related stories from the Carolinas. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years, from murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 76, Ernestine Roten, Jordan Nebling, and Judith Devers Heider. I'd like to start today's episode with a cold case from Hendersonville, North Carolina. On the morning of December 18, 1984, 21-year-old Clarence Roten made a shocking discovery. He had gone to visit his mother, 38-year-old Ernestine Roten, in an apartment she had recently moved into and found her deceased on the kitchen floor. Although Ernestine had a pacemaker to help keep her heart functioning, it was evident she had not died of natural causes. Ernestine's hands and feet were bound with an electrical cord, and there was a plastic garbage bag placed over her head. She wore a nightgown and robe. When Clarence tore the bag off his mother's head, he found that her nose and mouth had bled. He found no forced entry when he got to the apartment. And although Ernestine had lived in the neighborhood for six years, she had only been in that particular apartment for about six weeks. Clarence told police he lived at the duplex, which was in a low-income housing area, with his mother, but that night he had stayed with a girlfriend. He noted he last saw his mother in the early morning hours of December 18th, and that she had been fine then. The captain of the Hendersonville Police Department, at the time, said it was clear Ernestine's death was a homicide. The medical examiner determined she had died of asphyxiation, and investigators believed she had also been sexually assaulted. Ernestine Roten was originally a native of Asheville. At the time of her death, she had two children, son Clarence and daughter Zandra, age 23. She was survived by her two children, four sisters, two brothers, three stepbrothers, two stepsisters, and two grandchildren. Ernestine had been unemployed, but her friends and family said she had no known enemies and had never been afraid to stay at home alone. Clarence told police he believed his mother must have known her killer because she would have let that person into the apartment. She had recently filed for divorce from her husband of 17 years, Fred Roten, but on the night of her death, Fred was incarcerated at the Buncombe County Jail on charges of non-support. 
Ernestine's case eventually went cold. In 2007, the Hendersonville Police Department officially reopened the case and gathered additional evidence. In 2009, they named a person of interest. Based on the DNA evidence collected from a rape kit, the person of interest police named was David Foxworth, described as a black male, around 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighing around 140 pounds. In 2009, David Foxworth was 60 years old and incarcerated in South Carolina due to a kidnapping and murder attempt conviction on an unrelated case. Investigators from the police department traveled to the prison three separate times in an attempt to speak with the suspect, but he repeatedly turned them down, according to a news report from WLOS in Asheville. The Henderson County District Attorney Greg Newman said the DNA evidence proved that Ernestine Roten and David Foxworth had sexual intercourse around the time of her death, but there was not enough proof that he also committed her murder. There were never any witnesses placing David Foxworth at Ernestine's apartment the morning she died. The district attorney said it appeared David had been dealing marijuana in South Carolina and possibly Hendersonville in 1984, as well as doing contract work. The WLOS News report quoted Hendersonville Police Chief Lieutenant Chris Leroy as saying, I can, obviously, place him in Hendersonville based on his DNA. I can place him in her apartment based on his DNA, but that's the only thing I can link him in our jurisdiction for. I think at this point, someone will have to come forward with some information establishing a connection between our suspect and our victim. The police were not able to get any prints off the vacuum cord that bound Ernestine's hands and feet or the plastic bag. Nothing but the rape kit pointed to David Foxworth as the possible killer. The case continues to remain unsolved. Anyone with information on the murder of Ernestine Roten can contact the Hendersonville Police Department at 828-697-3025. Next, I'd like to talk about a current missing persons case from South Carolina. This is one of those frustrating cases where you likely know who is responsible for possibly committing a crime, but he's not talking, even in jail. On October 10th, 2020, 19-year-old Jordan Nebling disappeared from Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Her sister grew worried when she hadn't heard from Jordan in weeks, so she asked their ex-stepmother for help. Jordan had been staying with her biological mom at the time, and she told family she assumed Jordan had taken off on a whim and would be back eventually. Jordan's ex-stepmother, Mary Tucker, officially reported her missing on November 8, 2020. News reports about the case shared that while Jordan had been adopted as an infant and struggled as a teenager, when she went missing, she had tested negative for drugs, had accepted a new job, and seemed to be doing well. On the day before she went missing, Mary Tucker told Fox News Jordan and a young man she had been seeing drove from Traveler's Rest to Cowpens to visit a friend in a car they had borrowed. The man left Cowpens later that day and rode back with a friend. Jordan stayed in Cowpens but drove herself back to Traveler's Rest the next day on October 10th. But on the way, the car she was driving broke in front of a house near the old White House Road Extension. She spoke with a nearby resident and told him someone was coming to pick up the car that had broken down. That resident also saw Jordan get into a car with someone else later that afternoon. 
When police began looking into Jordan's disappearance, they discovered she had been picked up by her ex-boyfriend, Tyler Wilkins. He told investigators that the two had gotten into a fight after he drove her to his house, and then she left. He said he didn't know where she went after that encounter. Jordan's family remained at a loss in trying to determine what happened to their daughter, but they were suspicious of Tyler because he'd been abusive in the past. They also knew the area where Jordan had last been seen was desolate, and they worried he could have done something to her, and then left her body in an area where it would be difficult to find. They'd seen him push Jordan out of a moving car and do things like withhold food from her. On November 9, 2022, Tyler Wilkins was charged with the murder of a young woman named Clarissa Michelle Winchester. When Clarissa's parents hadn't heard from her, they grew worried, as she was seven months pregnant with Tyler's child. They went to the house where she'd been staying in Greenville County and spoke to Tyler. Then they called the sheriff's department with their concerns. Deputies returned to the home and found Clarissa deceased. The autopsy revealed she had been beaten to death, and her child, who her family named Grayson, had died of what the investigators determined was neglect. Unfortunately, as the news organization Fitz News uncovered, Tyler Wilkins should have been behind bars when Clarissa and her baby were murdered. He had been arrested in late October of 2021 for manufacturing drugs and receiving stolen property. He was released on bond. A month later, Tyler was arrested again, this time for domestic violence, attempted murder, pointing and presenting a firearm, threatening a public official, and throwing bodily fluids at a law enforcement officer. The last incident occurred as Clarissa's father, Mike Winchester, was trying to help her move out of the home she had shared with Tyler. He told the state newspaper in Columbia that their family knew Tyler Wilkins was violent, and they had tried to warn their daughter about how dangerous he was. As with a lot of domestic violence victims, she was convinced she could save him and went back to him after he was released on bond once again. Jordan Nebling's aunt told the state newspaper that Jordan, Tyler, and Clarissa all attended the same high school in Traveler's Rest. Jordan had previously lived with Tyler in the home he was sharing with Clarissa when she was murdered. As far as the family knows, Tyler Wilkins has not revealed any details of what may have happened to Jordan the last time he saw her. Jordan Nebling's case was featured on the show In Pursuit with John Walsh in October of last year. At the time Jordan went missing, she stood 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed around 90 to 100 pounds. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. She has a tattoo on her forearm that says, Live Free and Birds. Anyone with information on Jordan Nebling's disappearance is encouraged to contact the Greenville County Sheriff's Office at 864-271-5210 or Crime Stoppers of Greenville at 864-232-7463. You can also visit the Find Jordan Nebling Facebook page for more information. Next, I'd like to talk about a North Carolina resident named Judith Devers Heider who went missing on December 7, 2015. According to her family, 53-year-old Judith was coming out of a bad relationship and had been staying with friends in Bladen County, about four and a half miles north of White Lake. 
According to the NamUs website, Judith left the home she was staying at to help a friend whose car had broken down, but she never returned. An article that ran on news site WECT said her phone signal was lost two hours later. It had last pinged a few miles away from the town of Garland. Her 2006 Pontiac G6 was later found parked behind bushes on a property a few houses down from where she was living. Law enforcement officers searched the area, which is largely rural, on foot and by air in the days and weeks after she went missing, but found no sign of her. Judith has had no activity on her social media or bank statements since that day in December. Judith's two daughters said their mother loved being a grandma and that she called them every day. She had been getting ready to move into a new apartment when she went missing. Investigators have said they have a list of people of interest in the case, but there have yet to be any arrests. Lieutenant Rodney Warwick with the Bladen County Sheriff's Office says he thinks about this case often and he is hopeful that someone will come forward with information about the woman's whereabouts. In 2021, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper announced a $5,000 reward was being offered for information that leads to an arrest in connection to her disappearance. At the time she went missing, Judith Devers Heider stood 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed around 180 pounds. She has brown hair and hazel eyes. Both of her knees have scars from a knee replacement surgery. Judith also has a Tweety Bird tattoo on her left ankle. She may have been wearing flip-flops and a black nightgown with the word believe on the front of it. Anyone with information about Judith's whereabouts is asked to call the Bladen County Sheriff's Office at 910-6753. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. True crime is more popular than ever thanks to documentaries, podcasts, and media outlets that produce gripping crime stories. This is great news for writers wanting to explore this market. Crime narratives are not only compelling for consumers, they can also help find justice for victims, their families, and the community. In fiction, using true crime elements and journalistic techniques can help deepen the storyline and add authenticity to characters and plot. Do you enjoy reading and consuming true crime content? and would love to find a way to write and publish your own? In a webinar I'll be teaching through WOW Women on Writing next spring, I'll share how to find story ideas, how you can use true crime elements in nonfiction and fiction, where to pitch your true crime work, and more. You also have an opportunity to send an article outline or project pitch to me for feedback. The webinar will take place on March 14, 2024, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and will be recorded for those who can't attend in person. The cost is $45, and there are a limited number of spots, so register today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. Hey, True Crime fans. I'm Amanda. And I'm her mom, Pam. And we are inviting you to listen to our podcast, Enmeshed. We dive deep to give you fresh takes on stale relationships. Join us every Monday for an audio journey covering the darker side of family dynamics. Our episodes are around 30 minutes. We get right into it. We will guide you through intriguing lesser-known cases and famous crime stories involving murder, deceit, and the entangled family members who commit these crimes together or against each other. Check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And remember, some of the most poisonous people come disguised as family. And now, let's get back to the show. I'd like to close this episode with a few 
related news stories I shared on the Missing in the Carolinas social media pages this past week. In episode 74, I shared stories that featured college students who died in incidents that were suspected to be tied to hazing activities. I discussed the Tucker Hibbs Transparency Act, which was named for a student from Clemson University who died after falling off a bridge during an early morning run with his pledge class. This act requires that all public universities in South Carolina, with the exception of the Citadel and the Medical University of South Carolina, publish a report with all misconduct from fraternities and sororities. Each report is supposed to be updated 45 days before the next semester. At the beginning of this month, the Post and Courier shared an update from the most recent report. Thirteen fraternities were disciplined this past fall for incidents of hazing, serving alcohol to underage students, and other misconduct. The schools were listed as Clemson University, the University of South Carolina, and the College of Charleston. Six of the 13 disciplined fraternities, two at each school, were placed on probation for hazing, which limits the groups from hosting events with alcohol or gives them one more chance to fix their behavior before facing suspension. This past July, Clemson University's chapter of Alpha Gamma Rho was suspended for four years after an investigation revealed an initiation that used ice water and rock salt, which can cause severe burns and frostbite when combined. The university's chapter of Alpha Sigma Phi was also disciplined after an investigation revealed an underage student became so intoxicated at a fraternity event that they needed medical attention. The University of South Carolina's chapters of Alpha Sigma Phi and Phi Kappa Sigma fraternities were charged with hazing violations stemming from September events categorized as violent conduct. You can read the full article in the show notes. And finally, I'd like to close today with the story of a Charlotte area family who waited 79 years to find out what happened to a missing loved one. This story recently ran on WSOC-TV here in Charlotte. Second Lieutenant Fred L. Brewer graduated from Shaw University in 1942, after which he enlisted in the Army and trained as a pilot at the Tuskegee Army Airfield in Tuskegee, Alabama. He was a member of the 100th Fighter Squadron, 332nd Fighter Group. According to the Pentagon and Defense POW MIA accounting agency, 2nd Lieutenant Brewer went missing during World War II while piloting a single-seat 51C Mustang fighter plane on a mission to Germany on October 29, 1944. There were 57 planes that left the Ramatelli Airfield in Italy on the mission, split into three groups but heavy cloud cover over southern Italy forced nine fighters to return back to Ramatelli early. Second Lieutenant Brewer's plane was one that did not return. Other pilots reported that Second Lieutenant Brewer had been attempting to climb his aircraft out of the cloud cover, but stalled out and fell into a spin. After the war, a body was recovered by U.S. personnel in a civilian cemetery where 2nd Lieutenant Brewer's plane went down, but technology available at that time was unable to identify the remains. In 2011, researchers examined the case and discovered that an Italian police report indicated the remains were uncovered from a crashed fighter plane the same day as 2nd Lieutenant Brewer's disappearance. 
In June of 2022, the remains were disinterred and sent to a laboratory for further study. He was officially identified on August 10, 2023. His family recently held a memorial service for 2nd Lieutenant Brewer in Charlotte during this past week. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.